Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Let's Read the Bible. I'm Aaron. And I'm Evan. And this is a podcast where we t- read through the Bible every year and talk about what we learned along the way. If you would like to follow along, you can download the YouVersion Bible app or look up the Grove Church and look up the Grove Church, sorry, uh, in Marysville, Washington. You can find our plan there. We also have the plan available on our website, grove.church. If you're following along today, we are starting on day 330. And if you're a regular listener, you know that typically I don't open the podcast with an intro unless Evan is gone on vacation and we didn't have anybody else to fill in. But Evan is obviously here, so but he Hello. is fighting a cold, uh, and so we're trying to save his voice just a little bit so we can make sure to share his insights and observations through his portion of the reading plan. Uh, and so I'm kind of taking the bulk of the conversation today as much as I can. Uh, I do want to remind you as you are listening along to continue to send us in those questions. We love looking forward to the different questions you ask to uh, either challenge us to dig a little deeper or to visit things we maybe not have ever, have ever thought before, or even today, like taking a moment to reflect on our conversation, our journey, and the history of our podcast. Uh, so that's going to be a fun little conversation to have tonight, uh, today at the end of the podcast. There's three ways to send us a question. One is an email. The email address is info at grove.church. You can make sure to put in the subject line a podcast question, or you can direct message us on social media. We have a Facebook page and an Instagram handle. They both are the Grove CH, and you can find us there as well. So Evan's going to take over and do the first portion of this week's reading, and then I'll jump back in at the end, wrap it all up, and lead us into some questions and application stuff. So there you be. Yeah. If I'm not mistaken, I think we have, after this week, we'll only have two people left in the, in the backlog of questions. So we've been, we've been working our We're way catching up slowly, but surely I think it's going to work out. Uh, so this week we are in Romans chapter eight, starting in verse 18. We're jumping just right back in. I don't think there's, there's no ax in my portion this week. I'm not sure how much ax you're just doing. Me. I, we end this week with ax. Okay. There you go. So we're going to be back in the epistles, back in the letters of Paul. It's going to be a good time. Uh, Paul continues to speak on, w- continues on with the idea that we are heirs with Christ and that we will get to share in that blessing. He speaks specifically about the idea that the present suffering that the church is walking through is nothing compared to the to eternity with God. So in other words, the idea that the pain that we're walking through in this moment, when it's contrasted with what we get to see in eternity, spending it all with God, it, it ends up feeling just a little bit meaningless. He then talks about the all of creation eagerly awaiting the coming of Christ and compares it to the pain of childbirth. So this is in Romans chapter 8, verses 20 through 25. It says, For creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have been the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. So it's kind of, it's it's a really important thing. Paul is getting at this idea that um, all of creation is groaning for or was groaning for the the work of Christ and is is groaning for the return of Christ that will come. It's this idea that really 
all of creation is pointing towards this moment of Christ on earth that we're kind of getting ready to celebrate up here in Christmas. And then obviously with Easter, Jesus' death and resurrection, that all of creation is looking forward to this and at the same time is now looking forward to something new, which is really cool. I love that moment in Paul. Uh, As Paul continues, he shares that we can see God working everything together toward his plan of salvation, declaring that God works all things together for the good of those who love him. Uh, You'll notice there, it does not say that God works all things together for good. It says that God works all things together for the good of those who love him. Sometimes that gets misquoted a little bit. And a call called according to his purposes. Right. So there's the qualifier to that promise. So it's true. It's not that everything works out, you know, great for everybody, because obviously that's not going to work out. It's true. It's working things together for the good of those who love him. Uh, Paul wraps up chapter eight with a reminder that we can have full confidence in God and that nothing can separate us from his love. Chapter nine begins a new thought. Uh, It's a place of issue in all this. And it's kind of, you know, it's funny when we think of Romans, we don't often talk about these passages because as, as modern Christians, we're not super yeah. concerned with like, well, wait a second, Paul, where does Israel fit into all this? Because we're not, you know, we're not Israelites. So we're, we are the Gentiles. When you read about the Jews and the Gentiles, that's who we are. I mean, I shouldn't say we collectively as listeners, because maybe some of you do have Jewish heritage, but for the most part, we're all Gentiles. Uh, so we get a real peek into the heart of Paul when he declares that he wishes he could take on separation for Christ if that meant that all of his Jewish brothers and sisters who have rejected Christ would be saved. Um I, I just think that's a beautiful thing for Paul to say. And, and I think he truly means it. The, this idea that if I, if I could go to hell and, and spare every other, every other Jew from this. And, and when Paul's talking about Jews and Gentiles here, he's speaking specifically about those Jews who have rejected Christ, not Jewish believers. Cause obviously that's a different category of people. But when, when, when Paul's going through all these things, he's, you, you, you feel his heartbreak over his own people. And, and he, he was one of them. Remember Paul at the very beginning, he is persecuting the church. He's persecuting Christians. He's a zealous Pharisee. And then he has his life changed. And so now he, he wants nothing more than for that to happen with everyone else. Uh, Paul then makes the point that not all Israelites will be saved. And as an example, he cites that not all children of Isaac were chosen by God. So if you remember, Isaac is the child of promise. We talked about that a little bit last week in a different letter altogether, but kind of interesting that they connect a little bit here. Um, but Isaac is the child of promise, and yet both of his children were not chosen by God. Only Jacob was. And this, while, it may, this, while this may seem unjust to us, Paul reminds us that God has the right to show his mercy and grace to whoever he wishes. Us questioning why God has made these choices, I don't know, he, he, us questioning why God has made the choices he made would be like clay questioning the potter on what was thrown out. And Paul uses that example of when you you have the the clay that's discarded, it doesn't get to ask the potter why this happened. It's just kind of the way that it goes. Uh, Paul then cites Hosea showing that even the prophets said that not all of the, or sorry, that not all the people of Israel would be saved. And therefore not all were God's chosen people. Cause if they're not all saved, then they're not all God's chosen people. Paul's kind of working his way through a, uh, a, a theological explanation as to what the place of Israel is in all of this. Going on to chapter 10, Paul shares that the law has become a stumbling block to many. Uh, those Jews who rejected Christ believed that they could save themselves through the old covenant. This message, the message is for everyone, and Paul shares how that works and what we should do about it in Romans chapter 10. He says, but what does it say? The word is near you, your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. 
For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they how then will they call on him who have not believed? How are they to believe in him whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear of some someone beautiful preaching? Aaron's over there dying, just like me. Uh, and so how, how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Uh, chapter 11 continues on with the idea of the fate of Israel. Paul clarifies that God has not abandoned Israel, obviously, since Paul and pretty much the entire group of the first apostles are Jews. So that's kind of why I said earlier, he's not, when, he, when Paul's using Jews in this context, he's not saying anyone who uh, is of uh, Jewish ethnicity or was practicing the Jewish religion and recognizes Christ. He's saying specifically those Jews who do not recognize Christ as Messiah. Uh, he then compares the salvation of the Gentiles to a tree branch being grafted in, also saying that if some Jews reject, who reject Christ are jealous of the Gentiles, that might not be a bad thing as it could lead to their salvation. So essentially, if the God has his chosen people, Israel, and they've been growing, it's kind of like this tree. And then Paul talks about how now that we're on the other side of Christ, all of these Gentile branches are being grafted in. And so it makes sense like for a lot of the Jewish believers, like, well, wait, wait a second, where is this all coming from? Uh, but Paul is saying like, no, this is a good thing. This is a beautiful thing. And he even talks about how if some of them are jealous of the Gentile believers and what they're getting to do, it, that might not be a bad thing. Because again, whatever is going to lead people to faith in Christ, Paul is all about it. Uh, Paul then quotes Isaiah showing that a deliverer would come from Zion and take away the sins of Israel. Guess who that was? That was Jesus. Uh, you'll notice in this Wait, what? In the book of Romans, Paul is going to quote a lot of scripture because he's trying to show, again, in this part particularly, Israel's place in the midst of all this. And he's using the Old Testament to show that. Going into chapter 12, Paul encourages the church to present ourselves as living sacrifices, to devote ourselves to God fully. And this is because of the grace he has given us. Uh, we should not use our gifts, or sorry, because of the because of the grace, we should use our gifts to further the kingdom and mission of God out of thankfulness for what God has done. This next section, um, I'm just going to read because it's really good, uh, and it describes how we should live in light of God's mercy. So this is Romans chapter 12, verses 9 through 21. It says, let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints who and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one for e evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. And if he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. I, I, I just love that passage. I think it's a great reminder of how 
of how we are to live. We can kind of just go through every single point that Paul is making there and see what is the correct way that we're supposed to live in light of the grace that God has given us. So I love that he gives us that long passage there. Um, of course, Paul's advice does not end there. In chapter 13, he tells us that as Christians, we are to always obey the governing authorities over us, which in today's political climate is always a fun topic for discussion. Uh, I, I couldn't help but think back to uh, COVID where it was, it was, this was actually when it kind of in the, in the modern West, like we were not restricted by government very much as far as like the church and what we can and cannot say and what we can and cannot do. Uh, COVID was really where it kind of flared up. And I remember the question was like, okay, well, where's this line? Like we're called to respect the governing authorities. Um, obviously not in all things, right? Because we see in just going back earlier in the book of Acts, when, uh, Peter and John are told, Hey, no more preaching about this Jesus guy. <laughs> They're like, Hey, we're, uh, we're not going to listen to you. We're going to listen to God. So there is a line somewhere where when the when the authorities are telling you to do something specifically that is against what God's already told us to do. Uh, but then it's really hard because you're trying to figure out, okay, well, where is the line of as much as possible? How do we obey what the government has told us to do? How do we obey what those in authority are over us to do? And I think it's a reminder for us as Christians that I think oftentimes our first, our first thought is disobedience. Our first thought is how can I get out of this? And in reality, it should be our, our first shot. Our first thought should be, how do I respect those in authority over me? How do I respect those that God has placed in authority over me? And obviously when, when, you know, when lines have to be drawn, they have to be drawn, but it's doing so in love and not in kind of the, I think there's kind of a, a a revelry in it, I suppose, that I think is unhealthy for the church. And I think for people outside of the church, it makes them look at, at the church in, in, a, uh, in a in a worse light for what that's worth. So I don't know, it's kind of a controversial thing. I don't know if Aaron, you have anything you want to add there, but it's just one of those things. No, I yeah, I th I'm right there with you too. There you be. Uh, next, Paul shows that all love, uh, sorry, that all of the law for how we treat each other can be summed up pretty simply. You might remember this. It's love your neighbor as yourself. So that's Wait, what, what Jesus says. I heard that somewhere before. Uh, that's what Jesus says is the second greatest commandment. And it, it's a good point. Pretty much there's a lot of things in the law about how to treat others, but it, you can really sum it up with just treat others the way that you would want to be treated yourself. And if you do that, you're probably not going to be breaking the law very often. You're going to be kind to others. And that's the way that it's supposed to be. Uh, in chapter 14, Paul discusses a lot of themes similar to what we talked about last week. First, he says that we should not be in the business of judging other Christians for what affects their conscience. Uh, so as Paul puts it, it would be like judging another man's servant. Uh, there's only one person that servant answers to, and it's his master. It's not It's not the other person. Uh, so and what Paul's saying here is that we, we answer to Christ. That's who we answer to. Uh, so and specifically here, Paul's talking about not things that are blatant sin, because he's going to talk about that, especially once we get back into... Uh, his letters to the Corinthians, right? Paul's talking about things that are just completely sin, like, hey, this is intolerable. But there's other things. And and specifically back then, it would be keeping uh, keeping the dietary laws, eating food offered to idols, all these different things that the Jewish believers and the Gentile believers were kind of in conflict over. And Paul's getting kind of, again, it's very similar to what we talked about last week. Uh, don't let that be a stumbling block. <laughs> don't uh, don't let, let your... Um, let your conscience be your guide with how you're adding those things. I, and that's a Jiminy weird, Cricket. Yeah, no, that's a weird way to say that. I just, I just so because sometimes your conscience can uh, lead you astray. Yeah, exactly. So search things out with prayer. Don't just be like, oh, I don't, care. I don't feel like I need to do this. Like, no, no, like, like be fervent in the idea that we should not be sinning. But at the same time, it's realizing that some people's consciences are going to be a little bit different. Um, and the the, the example that I let think let is, righteousness be your guide. That's the better there way to you say go. It. 
uh, the example that always comes up to me, because I think it's just an easy one, is drinking. Like there's some Christians who enjoy it. There's some Christians who it's like, Careful, I, bro. I never want to touch it and that's fine. Um, I don't think the Bible prohibits it. The Bible prohibits being drunk and talks about how we should act in those certain ways. But I think as far as like drinking itself, it would be the equivalent of if your conscience does not say anything about if, if you don't feel any sort of guilt or whatever over drinking, that's great. Then and enjoy it. But if you're with someone who does, then don't just like be pounding beers like in front of them and saying no. Like like be respectful of other people. Uh it can be other things. My my grandparents, I remember they were telling a story about how um when they when my dad was growing up or my my dad and aunt and uncle were growing up, they had a uh they had a TV and there was people my grandparents were pastors and there was people in the church who thought, you know, TV is a sin, TV is of the devil. And so they would purposely like if those people came over, they didn't want it to be a big deal. So they would just unplug the TV and they put it away. And that was the whole thing. That's another idea, right? Where their consciences were in no way bothered by it. Uh, but it, it did bother other people. So they're trying to make sure that those things aren't a stumbling block. So one of those things. Fun history is funny like that. It's interesting that it uh, scripture calls us to consider others more important than ourselves. What? Because how many people today would actually move a TV from their living room because it causes someone to stumble? I know it's a really lame example, but it's true. Like how, how ridiculous would we be? Like, well, no, they just got to get over it. Like, right. no, if it's a big issue as a follower of Christ, like that's, that's what Paul is telling us is it's not about you. It's about the kingdom. It's about the body of Christ. And it's the goal is to mature and grow in our faith together and to remove those things that are stumbling blocks. So yeah. a TV is a really bad example, but it's at the same time, it's also dumb enough to really create the right tension point, I think. So right. anyways. I'm just imagining like you moving your TV and it's like, there's just a big mounting bracket on the wall. It's like, I don't, what was there? Oh man, weird. So, no, you just take a picture and put it over it. There you go. You have, you have a painting specific. Although I, yeah, anyways, I won't. I was gonna say, I saw someone create a frame around their TV to make it, and they put like pictures. So it looks like it was just a picture, a framed oh, picture. Yeah. Anyways. That's funny. All right. Anyway, sorry, let's go on a little bit of a tangent there. Uh, Paul begins to wind down his letter in chapter 15, and he encourages the Roman church to follow Christ, accept all newcomers to the faith, and reminding them that he is preaching only the gospel of Christ. Uh, after this, Paul shares some plans to hopefully come visit them on the way to Spain. I love these parts of... Uh, Paul's letters because it really does just kind of show you like no these are real letter letters written by the man these mm-hmm. aren't these aren't fake <laughs> these aren't uh, written hundreds of years after the plaque these contain things that would only be written if you were legitimately the person writing the letter uh, so he tells them that he wants to visit them on the way to Spain after he has dropped off some contributions from the churches in Macedonia and Achaia to Jerusalem uh, Paul then gives a list of people to welcome so he's saying hey these people are going to come visit. And so give them, you know, give them a hero's welcome, uh, including, but not limited to Phoebe, who is apparently a rich woman who funds many missionaries. Uh, and then Priscilla and Aquila. Priscilla is called Prisca in this one, which is kind of interesting. Uh, and they're kind of a power couple. You may have remembered them when we were reading through Acts. They're the ones who reigned in Apollos. And apparently they saved Paul's life at one point. So we don't get that story, but there you go. Uh, Paul then wraps up his letter by reminding the church not to tolerate those who stoke division among them and to hold fast to the gospel alone. And then he says, and I'm paraphrasing, but this is very much what it says. Uh, Timothy, Lucius, Jason, and Sosipater, uh, they all say hi. Uh, Tertius says hi. And he also drops that he's the one who wrote the letter. So he's like, I, Tertius, uh, I think it was maybe how you pronounce it. Uh, I'm the one who wrote the letter. Hello, church at Rome. Uh, and then Gaius, the guy Paul is staying with, says hi, along with the city treasurer, Erastus, and Cordus. They say hi as well. And then finally, Paul ends with this, which I think is a beautiful doxology to wrap it up. 
He says, Now him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed through the prophetic writings and has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God, be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Amen, Paul. Good, good on you. Well, like I said, we're not really in Acts this week, so nope. we're, go- we're going to be uh, jumping straight to 2 Corinthians. Uh, and remember, this is his second or fourth, if you want to be pedantic, letter to the church in Corinth. Uh, I don't a, feel so like judged when you say that word. Uh, it's just a fun way. It's just a, pedantic. It's just a fun word to say. Um, as a reminder, if you don't remember from last week, the idea is that Paul probably wrote four letters to the church at Corinth. The second and the fourth ones are the ones that we have and are considered scripture. And there's some other ones that he references in the other two letters. So it's not a definitive thing, but it's kind of, it seems like that's probably what's going on. Uh, he opens the letter by declaring that God is the God of all comfort. He And he comforts us so that we can be a comfort to others, which I think is a great reminder. So he says that God comforts us in our affliction so that we can comfort other people who are walking through affliction as well. So it's not as selfish, um, just let this comfort die with me. It's very much the idea of the gospel, right? The idea, yeah. because God has done this for me, how can I do this for others? So beautiful thing that they're thinking of there. Uh, and then Paul also lets the church in on some of his own suffering that he's been walking through. Second Corinthians is, is interesting because there's a lot more of the... Uh, just kind of in the middle of the book, him just kind of dropping like, yeah, I was doing this and I was doing this. This is what I've been up to. So again, it just reads like an actual letter written from a guy. It's not it's not something that's made up. Uh, so this is in 2 Corinthians starting in chapter, verse 1. Uh, it says, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction that we experienced in Asia, for we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we had rece- we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God, who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. You must be... Uh, sorry, you must. You also must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted to us through the prayers of many. So I love what Paul says there where he, said, he, he talks about how we were brought to the brink of death. We thought that it was all going to be over, but this was to make us rely on God all the more. It reminds me a little bit of Paul, and I don't remember what letter this is in, but the idea of his thorn in the flesh, right? And he talks about how he wants God to remove this thing, but it's not going to do it because God is saying, my grace is sufficient for you. It's basically as it's a reminder of Paul that God is enough. And so you can see here, he's walking through intense suffering and we don't, you don't want to belittle this. He's saying, we literally thought we were going to die, that it was going to be, we despaired of life itself, but this was so that we would rely on God all the more. So I love that Paul keeps that, keeps that perspective always. Uh, as Paul continues, he details the plans that he and the team have, including that they wanted to come and visit Corinth in person, but they thought better of it. Uh, Paul shares that he did not want to come and make another painful visit, which gives us a pretty good idea of how the last one get, went down. Uh, this second Corinthians is also kind of an apologetic letter. And, and by that, I don't mean a defense. I mean, literally, Paul's not straight up apologizing in the sense of like, I don't think he's regretting the things he said. I think he's kind of regretting some of the tone a little bit. And so it seems like he's he's caused some pain to the church in Corinth. He's trying to comfort them a little bit, but also remain stern on the, hey, you know, that stuff that was going on, it needs to stop. Uh, continuing on through chapter two, Paul also tells the church to forgive those who have sinned against them They have exercised, and that they have exercised church discipline toward. So you might remember last 
the last letter to the Corinthians, Paul says, don't associate with these people, kick them out of the church. And, and the idea there is, again, not just a full removal forever. The hope is that they would repent of their sin and that they would be brought back. So it seems like that it's hinted that at least some of the people mentioned in Paul's first letter to the church have repented of their sin. And hopefully that guy having an affair with his stepmom was one of them. You know, I really hope that guy came back into the fold after all this. Uh, and so Paul's telling them, hey, don't keep them on the outside when they've repented and, they, and they're genuine in these things. It's time to bring them back into the church. Uh, Paul then goes back into telling them about how the, his trip has been going. He's basically saying that he was ministering in Troas and that it went really well, but he had a burden because he couldn't find uh, his friend Titus. And so he went on to Macedonia and both cities received the gospel and the churches seemed to be thriving. So, you know, thanks for the update, Paul. Good to, good to know. Uh, in chapter three, we get another window into what Paul may have been accused of. So this is in 2 Corinthians chapter three, verses one through six. Are we, bidding to, are we beginning to commend ourselves again, or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter of recommendation, written on our hearts, to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, not written with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ and toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who made us sufficient to be ministers of the new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. So again, you have to kind of read through the lines, but it seems like uh, Paul is essentially, he's saying like, apparently the last time the church of Corinth came, they wanted some reassurance that Paul is like, you know, he's legitimately able to preach the gospel that he's one of the apostles. And so he's like, hey, do you need another letter, letter of recommendation? Or are we fine? And again, he's giving it this idea that we're preaching just the pure gospel. That is what we're going after. Uh, as Paul goes on, he shares about how the new covenant in Christ is greater than the old covenant that was given to Moses. And he makes clear that they are not declaring that they themselves are great, but rather that Christ is great. And again, this is probably something Paul's being accused of, to ma of making himself out to be uh, some type of hero, some type of, you know, like basically it's that story with Paul and Barnabas where they thought they were Zeus and Hermes. It would be like him actually... Basically, the accusation would be him being like, yeah, that's totally who I am. Uh, and so Paul makes clear, no, that's not what I'm talking about. In chapter four, Paul talks about how they hold this great treasure, the treasure of the gospel in jars of clay. Uh, so in other words, it's the idea of the the human weakness of, of the jar of clay. And I love these verses. It says in verses seven through 10, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven. Well, sorry, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body of death, Jesus. So are always carrying in the body, the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. And I don't, it brings to mind an old, I, I think it was an Israel Houghton song, but at the very least, it's one that we used to sing in church when I, when I was growing up. But it's like, you know, struck down, but not destroyed. It always, it always brings me there. I, I have no know. idea what song you're talking about. I feel like that happens a lot with this. We grew up very differently here. The churches that we grew up in were apparently culturally very dissimilar, but it makes me think of it. Uh, but again, it's this idea that we can endure a lot and, and we always are able to come out of the other end because of who Christ is. Uh, we are afflicted, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed because of the hope that we carry in Christ. Uh, chapter five sees the hope of eternity with the church. So, or sees, sorry, sees Paul shared the hope of eternity with the church. 
reminding them that no matter what happens here, nothing can take away our eternal home in heaven. He also echoes the theme of the Romans and of the theme of in Romans of Christians groaning for the return of Christ. So he mentions that in back-to-back letters. Uh, Paul once again reiterates that he is not trying to make himself out to be great, but is rather trying to show how great God is. He implores them on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. Paul then presents the gospel yet again, sharing that God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. That's a very famous verse. That yep. my, as soon as I read it, I was like, oh, okay, that's where we're at. Uh, going into chapter six, Paul then tells the church to not take this gift for granted. Paul and his companions have endured terrible suffering for Christ so that these churches may come to know him. And I think it's just, it's an important thing that, and Paul does this often, it's representing the gospel, reminding the, and I love the way it's phrased, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. So in other words, Jesus was perfect, he was sinless, and yet he suffered the punishment of a sinner so that we might have life in him. And therefore, we shouldn't take that gift lightly. Uh, and the last thing he says, at least in my readings for this week, is this idea of don't be unequally yoked to unbelievers, um, which most often is quoted as basically don't marry unbelievers, mm-hmm. which I think is, it's an applicable, um, it, it's an application of this first, but it's much broader. The idea there is don't saddle yourself to unbelievers. It's it, even like a relationship. And this, I should be clear. This isn't saying don't have any relationship with unbelievers. What it is saying is like, who are the people that we are relying on? It's like rely on fellow Christians, like build, build up together within yeah. the church uh, and bring people into the fold. If, you don't have those close Christian relationships. If you don't have those close Christian friendships uh, or like Christian spouse, all those different things, it's probably going to go a little bit worse for you. And he compares it to saying that being, you know, being unequally, sorry, I should say a yoke also is a, uh, yeah. it's a big wooden thing that goes over ox. So if you think back to uh, like the Oregon trail, the big wooden thing between the two oxen that's pulling the cart, uh, that's a yoke. And yeah. so when he's saying, don't be unequally, unequally yoked, it's a, it's a partnership idea there. Uh, but Paul says when that happens, it's similar to an idol being set up in God's temple, which the last time that happened led to the whole Maccabean revolt. So to his Jewish yeah, audience, don't do that. That, yeah, to his Jewish audience, that would have been a very fresh image in their heads. And he's saying it's basically the same thing there. So that's where my readings wrap up for the day. Yeah. And I think the picture of that, that picture of being yoked is, I mean, when you put two oxen together to plow a field, that was, a, there was a purpose put or, to, or, or to it or pulling a cart or whatever the case is. The weaker oxen oftentimes would hinder the stronger oxen, and the strong oxen would be um, uh, diminished in his ability to to pull the weight because most of the weight would be on there. So it's, it is this this graphic picture in the best sense of that phrase. A very vivid picture is what I mean by graphic. Um, is is be careful who you're uh, lining up with. Be careful who you're yoking yourself to because you are connected to them. You cannot you cannot be disconnected to him. So he's saying be very careful about that. Uh, and so then we're going to continue in Second Corinthians. But before we do, I do want to encourage you to take a moment. If you haven't done this yet, uh, can I encourage you to take a, a moment and leave a five-star review for us? Um, if this podcast has been something you've enjoyed, you've grown, you've been a part of the community for a long time and you're continuing to be part of it, I would love for you to, t- to pause the podcast right now and leave a five-star review. We will take time. If, if you leave a five-star review uh, and read it on the air, just because we want to make sure to shout out those individuals who are doing so. Uh, but we also do take moments to uh, highlight and respond and read the podcast reviews that we have. Even this, this last week, we were given uh, a four-star review. Four and so, stars. Um, and so I appreciate it. And there was some, uh, I'm going to be, it's by the handle of Allison of Allison, I believe is, is kind of the, pod, the handle there. Uh, but one of the things that she said in this podcast was that it's a great option if you want to let the stories of the Bible and maybe not try to sit and read it yourself, but 
Um, but she did leave even a, a constructive criticism, I guess, if you will, of asking it to stop gasping and, and breathing into the microphone. So uh, we're trying our best in there. And I know Evan's been trying really hard this podcast specifically. Yeah, it was hard going in because you know, so earlier this year, I got some feedback about don't say um as much. You know, I've been working on it. I've been trying not to um it all the time. Uh, and so this week I was going into it like, okay, I need to stop like kind of breathing really fast into the mic. And it was really hard because I'm sick, but hopefully next week it improves. I'm, yeah. work, I'm working on it. Yeah. And so, but again, I say that only because like we're, we've heard this through, through different reviews and, th- and it's just true of who we are. We're just two guys who really love the Bible and want to take time to um, really dive into what scripture is telling us. Um, and I love the fact that it's, it's encouraging and it's been a benefit to you as well. But I would caution this one thing. Don't just listen to us talk about the Bible because you don't want to read it. Read scripture because there's something about God has called us to and given us his word. Uh, so I just just take a little pastoral moment if you'll let me because we are pastors. Uh, is to not just be content with hearing two guys talk about scripture, but be someone who who is a reader of scripture, who lets scripture read them. Uh, because it's not about hearing someone else's observations, insights, or principles, but it is about letting scripture transform us individually from the inside out. So make sure we're doing that too. I appreciate you being a part of the podcast community. I appreciate you giving grace uh, and helping us get better. That's the goal. And so we appreciate that review. That's why we took a moment to read it on the air today. But if you haven't yet, leave in a five-star review. Please do that. We would appreciate that. It helps grow the community of people being able to engage and read the Bible together. So First Corinthians or Second Corinthians chapter seven is where we pick up. And Paul starts off this chapter saying, so then dear friends, since we have these promises, let us cleanse ourselves from every impurity of the flesh and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. And he takes the previous section, the previous chapter, and he, he anchors it as, as a, a foundational point into chapter seven and challenges the early believers. And even us today reading this book to remember because of the promises we have we should then be motivated to cleanse everything out of our lives and our spirits that are not holiness, that are not leading us to the, the sanctifying work of God. And we need to remember that in all of those things because it is important that we honor him as best we can in responding obediently to his, his word. Paul continues in chapter seven to reflect on his love for Corinthian believers, reinforces the truth of his authority and message. He was saying that it wasn't corrupt. I wasn't taking advantage of anybody. And he's alluding to the false apostles who have already accused him of that. And they've said, hey, Paul's just manipulating you. He's corrupt and he's corrupting you as well. Uh, These false apostles are trying to sway the early believers, uh, early church believers in Corinth uh, to follow their standard, not follow what Paul has said, the gospel Paul's preached. Paul continues uh, to say, uh, and establish himself as someone who's trustworthy and, and worthy of being followed. Uh, he would say, even as we've already read, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Uh, he continues where he shares with them the hardship and the suffering that he faced in Macedonia. Um, and it's interesting here because you do see a very personal aspect to this section of Corinthians. I, there is a point in just a couple of chapters where it's going to turn very harshly. But the the thing that I love about this is you see the personal love and care that Paul had for the early believers. And he said, while I was facing hardship and suffering in Macedonia, the encouragement that I received uh, started with Titus showing up. And so Titus coming back from the church in Corinth, giving him a report. He was encouraged by Titus's presence and also Curtis or Titus's presence and also encouraged by the fact that Titus was refreshed by the Corinthian church as well. So both of those things were very encouraging to Paul. 
helping Paul find uh, a joy in the fact that the Corinthian believers were returning or repenting or denouncing the false apostles' accusations and being able to celebrate that with people he loves and cares about. Chapter 8 then takes a moment where it provides direction to the church of Corinth and setting aside an offering on a weekly basis. In essence, he's challenging the Corinthians to be generous, to help shoulder and provide for the church in Jerusalem, which is one of the things that he did across all churches is this idea of giving. It's this idea of tithing. It's this idea of setting aside a gift so that no one can be without. It anchors back to Acts when the early church first started. And Paul is taking that same uh, principle in the early church where they sold all their possessions so that no one would be without. And he's asking every church to do the same thing. Hey, take an offering. Let's make sure we're shouldering the burden and the care and care for one another. So he's setting up the standard and reminding them in Corinth about the giving and setting aside a gift. And he refers back to Macedonia's generosity. He's saying, listen, this community of people, and as a side note, Macedonia churches were not very wealthy. They were impoverished. They didn't have a lot of money. Uh, But Corinth, the churches in Corinth weren't that way. The churches in Corinth had money. They were very, very wealthy and well off. So Paul is saying, hey, Macedonia set the standard. Macedonia has led the way. They've been incredibly generous, even though their means and resources were not as abundant as yours. So he's saying, so based upon what Macedonia has done, can I challenge and encourage you in Corinth, which is a wealthy, rich place, to make sure to lead and match the standard that Macedonia set and setting a gift aside so that it can become collected by Titus when he comes back. So he is appealing to the Corinthian church to be generous also. And he says this, as you excel in everything, in essence, he's affirming them and saying, you have excelled in, in, in a lot of things. As you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, and in all diligence, and in your love for us, excel also in this act of grace. And and it's this admonition, it's this exhortation to say, be generous. And then he takes a moment in chapter 8 to talk practically about how the giving will be collected. In essence, he's given Titus a stamp of approval and authority, saying he'll be the one that comes back with a group, uh, a a couple guys, to collect the giving to bring it back to the church in Jerusalem, because that's what the gift was for. And then we shift into chapter nine, where Paul talks very clearly about the motivation for giving and then also reinforces the why of giving. And he says this in chapter nine, verses six through 11. He says, the point is this, the person who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And the person who sows generously will also reap generously. Each person should do as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or out of compulsion, since God loves a cheerful giver. And I want to make a point here because this is very important to understand. It's this call to generosity not to be under compulsion, not to be um, manipulated into giving more than you should or more than you are able, but to give sacrificially, joyfully in the heart, because what Paul is saying, your, your, your provision is anchored back to God, who God is as provider. So prayerfully consider what's your role, what's your, what are you called to give? which sometimes I'm going to be honest with you, like we're, we're called to live to the same standard. There are things that I have to give up now because I feel God's call on my life to give to, to the church, to help further the mission, to help be a part of seeing God's work be done on earth through a church that I'm a part of. There's, there's not a caveat here. There's not a, an exception. There's not a, uh, only if it lines up with what you think or want. No, this is a call that if we, if we are following Jesus, we are aligned with the gospel that we, uh, 
attend and engage with the church body, we are called to support the mission and the work of, uh, of, of the local body we're called to, the one that we're engaged with. And that includes generosity. That includes financial giving. So he's saying, don't do this under compulsion or reluctantly. Don't begrudge the fact, oh, I have to give my tithe. No, it's this matter of understanding. I'm going to be joyful because God has blessed me to be a to be able to bless and engage and be generous with what I have. Uh, I heard a story of a uh, pastor years ago who talked about uh, a truck that he had bought, but he's like, I, that, man, that truck's not mine. It's a kingdom truck. So if the, if the youth ministry needs a truck to haul a trailer, it, it, it's a kingdom truck. Take the truck. I don't need it. Uh, and, and it's just this idea and this heart to be generous. And I look at my own life and I, I want to live the same way. I want to live generously. I want to live with joy, knowing that, God, you have blessed me with, with what you've blessed me with. And it may not be the same standard or amount, so to speak, as someone else, but I want to be generous and sacrificial with what he has given me so I can honor him with everything I am. It also protects me against idol worshiping of materialistic things. But anyway, so Paul is challenging. The motivation of giving is cheerful. It's joyful because of who God is as the provider. He continues on in, in verse eight and says, God is able to make every grace overflow to you so that in every way, always having everything you need, you may excel in every good work. Verse nine says, as it is written, he distributed freely. He gave to the poor, his righteous endures forever. Now the one who provides seed for the sower and bread for food will also provide and multiply your seed and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way for all generosity, which produces thanksgiving to God through us. And I just love the, the reminder Paul challenges the church at Corinth, as well as us today, this reality of why do we give and how do we give? Because God is the provider. He's able to cover our need. And I'm not saying you don't give and you get the same amount back, but I'm saying it's our ability to give generously is rooted and anchored to the fact that God is our provider. Matthew 6 talks about this as well, the idea of, of provision. And so I just love that Paul challenges the Corinthians and he uses a, a, a poor church, so to speak, a poor region in Macedonia as an example for the Corinthian believers uh, in modern times for Paul. We then jump into chapter 10 and there's a major shift in tone of the letter here. So the first nine verse chapters were, were encouraging, were warm, were celebratory, were kind of anchored to the report that he'd received from Titus. Then in chapter 10, we get this massive shift and Paul has this moment of harshness and he also is very defensive and not in the sense of like insecure, he's defensive about being attacked. He's defensive in essence, arguing back uh, because there's been... He's trying to combat the lies and the accusations of false apostles. Uh, and then he says this statement in verse one. I'm going to read the first 11 verses of chapter 10. It says, now I, Paul, myself appeal to you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. I am who I, who am humble among you in person, but bold towards you in absent. I beg you that when I am present, I will not need to be bold and confident and the, with the confidence by which I plan to challenge certain people who think they are behaving according to the flesh. For although we live in the flesh, we do not wage war against the flesh, according to the flesh. Since the weapons of our warfare are not of flesh, but are powerful through God to demolish strongholds, we demolish arguments and every proud thing that is raised up against the knowledge of God. And we take every thought captive to obey Christ. Are we ready to punish any disobedience once your, disobedience, or once your obedience is complete? Look at what is obvious. If every, anyone is confident that he belongs to Christ, let him remind himself of this. Just as he belongs to Christ, so do we. For I boast a little too much about our authority, which the Lord gave for building you up and not tearing you down. 
I will not be put to shame. I don't want to seem as though I'm trying to terrify you with my letters. For it is said, and this is a report that he got back again from Titus, his letters are weighty and powerful, but his physical presence is weak and his public speaking amounts to nothing. Now that's a shot if, 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 I'm, not, if I'm being honest with you. Paul writes in a way that's very powerful and forceful, but when he's standing with them, their experience has been nothing really to write home about. He seems to be, you know, whatever, pretty simple. There's nothing, it doesn't do anything for us. It's not challenging or whatever. And Paul says this in response, let such a person consider this. We are in our letters when we are absent. We will also be in our actions. What we are in our letters, sorry. We will also be in our actions when we are present. So you see this moment in Paul as he's writing for this this chapter 10, not that he wrote a chapter, but as he's writing in this portion of the letter, you see him all of a sudden take a shift and he takes to the offensive. Here's what I've been reported to that you have been hearing about me, that individuals have been coming at me. So the rest, almost the rest of the letter is going to take this uh, argument, defensive approach, this, this harsh rebuke of those false apostles and those who are believing and being seduced by those false apostles. Uh, so we see in chapter 11, he's going to continue dismantling of the false prophets. I put that word in there intentionally. He's like ripping them down to expose them for what they are. He pokes fun at their foolishness and those who believed in them by saying that I hope you'll let me be foolish too. So in essence, he's talking. And as he kind of gets into this section of boasting, it's because he's in essence, combating these apostles who have self-proclaimed themselves to be super apostles, he says that it's foolishness to to celebrate your own like your own abilities, your own uh, accolades. To give yourself a title of a super apostle is foolishness, because he would anchor it back to everything is foolish apart from Christ. Real authority comes from Jesus. So we're going to see that in the rest of in the majority of the rest of the book, he's dismantling these false apostles. And then calling what they, what they, how they're establishing themselves and giving themselves authority to be foolish. Uh, he rebukes those who have seduced the Christians. He rebukes those who have been seduced by them. Uh, he calls them super apostles, which is, it's only in chapter 11 and chapter 12, where Paul uses this phrase, when in essence just it translates to be like they're super apostles. So like they're self-entitled and, and, or sorry, they're self-titled and they lack real authority. So Paul's poking at them and making fun of them, but he's also saying, this is foolish. These individuals who are standing up are speaking foolishness. And then we get to chapter or verse 16 in chapter 11. He's talking of the foolishness and claiming superiority based on anything apart from Christ. Because I, I put it this way, that like Christ is the great leveler. Christ is the one who sets the standard. Christ is the one who sets apart. Christ is the one who empowers and gives authority. So we see this in chapter 11 verses, I'm going to read 16 to 31, because this is some of the strongest like pieces of, of writing Paul will have in this letter towards these super apostles. He says this, I repeat, let no one consider me a fool, but if you do, at least accept me as a fool so that I can also boast a little. In other words, he's saying, I'm not foolish. I don't boast in myself. But since everyone else is boasting in themselves, let me be a little foolish and share my resume with you as well. He says in verse 17, what I'm saying in this matter of boasting, I don't speak as the Lord would, but as it were foolishly. So that's what he's saying. This is not from God. This is not that, that God has not given me the stamp, these stamps of approval. Uh, this is what I'm going to boast in to, to just kind of come on the same page with these quote unquote super apostles. It's meant to be jabs and jabs and jabs the whole time. Verse 18 says, since many boast according to the flesh, I will also boast for you being so wise, gladly put up with fools. So again, he's calling out those who are listening, those in the early church in Corinthian church that are listening to these super apostles in verse 20. In fact, if you put up with it, 
if someone, if you, if you put up with it and if someone enslaves you, it's, if someone exploits you, if someone takes advantage of you, if someone is arrogant towards you, if someone slaps you in the face, I say this to your shame. We have been too weak for that, but in whatever anyone dares to boast, I am talking foolishly. I also dare. So again, he's putting himself on the same level saying, I'm going to boast just like you do. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? Hey, so am I. Are they the descendants of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I'm talking like a madman. I am a better one with far more labors, many more imprisonments, far worse beatings, many times near death. So he's saying, literally, this is the things that they're boasting in. Hey, I'm right there with him. Check that box. Let me check that box. Let me check that box. Hey, let me check this box. But let me show you I am far better than them as a servant of Christ. So they claim. Then he goes into his resume. Five times I received the 40 lashes minus one from the Jews. If you didn't know this, there was 40 lashes minus one because it was shown. And, and I, I can't believe, I don't remember if this is actual fact, but it was believed to have 40 lashes would kill a man. So they bring him to the near verge of death. That's why it would be 40 minus one. So that with 39, they wouldn't be dead, but they would get the closest punishment they could to death. And that way they'd have time to recover, but live in their agony. So he says, five times I've received that. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I received a stoning. Three times I was shipwrecked. I have spent a night and a day in the open sea. On frequent journeys, I faced dangers from rivers, sorry, dangers from robbers, dangers from my own people, dangers from Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers at sea, dangers among false brothers, toil, hardship, many sleepless nights, hunger, thirst, often without food, cold, and without clothing. Not to mention other things. There is only there is the daily pressure on me, my concern for all the churches. Who is weak and I'm not weak? Who is made to stumble and I do not burn with indignation? If boasting is necessary, I will boast about my weaknesses. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is blessed forever, knows I am not lying. So he's in this passage, he's he's dismantling the super apostles by putting himself on the same level and in, in a much higher standard. He actually says, according to your standards. I'm far greater than you. I've experienced more than you for the kingdom. I have served more. I have, and he's showing him the the Corinthian church, all these quote unquote super apostles have nothing in comparison to me. And that's what chapter 11 becomes about. In chapter 12, he shares a witness of a man and is continuing dismantling. He talks about a a man who was caught up in a vision or a revelation of God in, in the third heaven. And what, what I want to be clear about here is what he's referring to here is it wasn't three layers of heaven as far as eternity is concerned. What he's talking about is the atmospheric sky was oftentimes in biblical times reviewed or viewed as like a, a first level of heaven, first layer of heaven. Then you got to the planetary sky, which was viewed as the second level of heaven. And then you got like heaven, eternity, where God resides as the third layer of heaven. So what Paul is not saying is that there's multiple le- levels of heaven as far as we understand in our Christian worldview uh, Christian view of understanding eternity. He's talking this physical pr- sense. And then as far as where God exists is in the heavenly sense. So he's providing a distinction in how they would uh, understand atmosphere and planetary guidelines and things like that in space in their current time. They don't have the technology we understand now to know beyond what they knew. They just knew, were limited in that understanding. So Paul is just saying he had a, he had a, he knows a guy who had a vision and was caught up in a revelation of God in heaven. And 
that was just an experience he was sharing. He then continues, Paul continues to uh, talk about this idea of boasting. And then he talks about the thorn in the flesh where he had asked three times for God to remove it. Now, this thorn in the flesh, again, Paul is just trying to establish a standard and establish a clear communication as far as his authority and, and potency that comes from being who God has called him to be. And his, the only thing he's going to boast, as we already know, is in Christ and Christ alone. But it says that he had this thorn that he prayed about three times. Uh, and there's not clarity on what what we today would know this thorn to be. Uh, we're told uh, that... It, it seems to be implicating, implying, implicating, implying that the Corinthians probably knew what this thorn was, but we don't know. There's been a lot of speculations throughout human history since this letter has been written to identify what it is. Some have viewed it as a physical sickness or maybe physical health challenge like poor vision. Uh, some believe it could be a spiritual thorn in the flesh where you see this demonic oppression or ongoing attack, maybe some psychological mental health issues, uh, or even physical opposition from enemy from actual physical em- enemies. Uh, but whatever the case is, we we find in this passage that Paul met or Christ met him in the midst of the suffering, in the midst of this uh, belaboring and asking God to remove it. And this is what he said in verse 9 through 10. He says, but he said to me, referring to Jesus, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is perfect in weakness. And that's a verse we oftentimes hear and probably I probably misquote more than I should. Um, but it is this this standard and this this the statement that's been made by Christ to Paul uh, to affirm to encourage and to empower him to endure the hardship and the and the physical thorn in the flesh that he feels in whatever capacity that actually is the source of the thorn and so Paul's response to this statement from Jesus is therefore I will bo- most gladly boast all the more about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may reside in me so I take pleasure in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, and in difficulties for the sake of Christ. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And it's this incredible moment where Paul, in the midst of suffering this, this torment, this thorn in the flesh, has clarity from Jesus about his power, his sufficiency, is in, in the grace of Christ, and that his power is perfected in that thorn and in that weakness. And, and it's such a great truth for us to hold on to today and to remember that in the midst of things we face. Um, then after this, we get a sarcastic, aggressive statement that I, I think is worth reading. Uh, it says this in verse 11, immediately following this confession and this revelation of what Christ said to him, he says, why? In talking about when he was weak, he's strong. He'll take pleasure in those things and, and weaknesses and insults and hardships. He says, why? Because I don't love you? No, God knows I do but I will continue to do what I'm doing in order to deny an opportunity to those who want to be regarded as our equals in what they boast about. For such people are false prophets or false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And it's this blatant, full-on, let me call you out. I'm going to aggressively reject and rebuke you because you can't hold a candle to what I have walked through. But it's not even about what I have walked through or my resume. It's about Christ and Christ alone. And that's what sets me apart. And I love that he makes that statement uh, in chapter 11 as he's wrapping up his thought there. Uh, sorry, chapter 12 uh, as he's wrapping up his thought there. He then can shares concern uh, for them in chapter 12. Uh, he continues to tell them about his desire to come see them for a third time. Uh, he, he takes this parent to a child approach because he has he cares very deeply for the people and the, the believers in Corinth. He's also afraid to find among them if, when he shows back up. 
find them quarreling and jealous and anger. They're arrogant that they would be slandering, that there's selfish ambitions, that there's disorder in the midst of everything going on, all which go against the gospel and how the church first launched when it first encountered the gospel and them as a body of believers. Uh, so based, he exhorts them at this point based upon the fear that the believers need to hear the warnings that he's saying and repent. And then we get the wrap up of chapter 13, where Paul wraps up this letter with a final warning to evaluate one's life and repent to test oneself and examine oneself. And then he has these kind of quick hit uh, exhortations. He says, finally, brothers, and starting in verse 11, brothers and sisters, rejoice, become mature, be encouraged, be of the same mind, be at peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints send you greetings. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. And he wraps up his letter to 2 Corinthians. And we have two more chapters that we're reading this week. And we jump back into the book of Acts at this point. And we uh, begin to continue to follow, or I guess we continue to follow Paul's visits and journeys and the ministry he has. We have this one story uh, about Paul preaching one night and preaching and preaching and preaching and preaching and preaching, going on and on and on to the point way into the hour, wee hours of the night, a man named, or a boy named Eutychus was sitting in a window. First off, don't sit in the window. It's not a smart idea, especially when Paul's preaching. Second of all, don't name your kid Eutychus. <laughs> That's just unfortunate. That's true. Uh, so he ends up falling asleep while Paul's speaking, falls down. I think it's two stories, ends up dying, quote unquote. Paul goes down, prays for him. He comes back alive and rejoins the, the gathering as Paul continues speaking. And it's just kind of a quick little hit, miraculous supernatural moment. Then chapter 20 of Acts continues to tell us of some of the travels of Paul as he's preaching in the gospel, preaching the gospel, building and strengthening churches. And then he goes to Ephesus and uh, we're going to begin to start seeing at this point, Paul's recognition of what's coming. And his willingness to continue to walk down this journey uh, towards Jerusalem. And you see him kind of wrapping up and passing off the baton. So we see this first portion in chapter 20, verse 17 to 25. Uh, It says, when now from Miletus, he he sent to Ephesus and summoned the elders of the church. When they came to him, he said to him, you know, from the first day I set foot in Asia, how I was with you the whole time, serving the Lord with all humility, with tears and during the trials that came to me through the plots of the Jews. You know that I did not avoid proclaiming to you anything that was profitable or from teaching you publicly and from house to house. I testified to both Jews and Greeks about repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus. And I now am on my way to Jerusalem, compelled by the Spirit, not knowing what I will encounter there, except that in every town, the Holy Spirit warns me that the change and afflictions are waiting for me. But I consider my life of no value to myself. My purpose is to finish my course and the ministry I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of God's grace. And now I know that none of you among whom I've went about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. It's this really sobering moment where Paul is aware of what's coming. He's not fully aware. He doesn't understand everything, but he knows he has to continue and finish the call that God has placed on his life. And he has this moment with the elders in Ephesus. And we continue in where we see... (coughs) Excuse me. Wow, that caught up. came out of nowhere. But we see this moment with Paul, with the Ephesian elders, and he understands that this is towards the end. That line where this will you will ever you will never see me again. 
Paul's giving them some last exhortations in this moment. He's simply, in essence, it's the passing of the baton to the leaders of the church in Ephesus, admonishing them to care, to love, to lead, to, to be bold for the gospel. And then it says he kneels down and prays with them, prays with all of them. And this is what he, uh, this is just that passage and, and a few verses. And it's such a, a powerful moment. It's such a, 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 such a deeply personal moment where we see in Paul the deep love and care he had for the believers, for the, the body of Christ, for the family of God. It says, after seeing this, he knelt down and prayed with all of them. There were many tears shed by everyone. They embraced Paul and kissed him. Grieving most of all over a statement that they would never see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. So they escort him to the ship. He gets on the ship and then he heads to Jerusalem, which is where we pick up in chapter 21, verses 1 through 36. This is where we're kind of landing this week's reading. Paul is on his way to Jerusalem. They stop in Tyre because the ship has to unload its cargo. He stayed with the disciples there for about seven days. Uh, who at the whole time said, told Paul not to go to, to Jerusalem. And there's this curious little three-word phrase that I was reading, which made me just wonder uh, and speculate, open-handed stuff like, what would have happened if Paul didn't go to Jerusalem? Because it says, through the Spirit, they told him not to go to Jerusalem. It, it, it's interesting to me to consider what if it's through the Spirit, it means that the church in, in, in Tyre, the body of believers there in Tyre, were, were given insight and revelation about what's to come. And so they tried to tell Paul, Paul, don't go. You're, you're not going to, you're not going to survive this trip. It's like a suicide mission. Don't go. And Paul, because of even the previous statement, he's like, I consider my life worth of no value to myself. I have to finish this course. So he stays with, after he, he stayed with the disciples for seven days, he departs and they set sail again. The ship leaves and he continues to greet and encourage. That's what we get in this chapter. We continue to see him greet and encourage believers along the way. We see Paul in this moment, re-encounter Philip the evangelist. Now Philip the evangelist is uh, one of the seven that were elected to take care of the distribution of food before the scattering of the church or the Christians because of the persecution. He's also the one that went uh, to and found the Ethiopian eunuch reading the prophet of Israel scroll in his chariot. He explains that the eunuch then gets baptized and it says Philip is then uh, uh, dis- disappears in essence. Uh, so we're re- we see re- a revisitation or re-encountering of Philip. And we're also told that Philip at this point had four virgin daughters who were now prophesying. So they were prophesying, which is a very huge statement in, in biblical times because culturally women were not of place of value or authority or whatever, but they were prophesying. They were prophetesses and, and being able to walk in the gifting of the Holy Spirit that way. It says, after they stay there for several days, we're then introduced to this prophet named Agabus. It says this in 21 verses 10 to 14. After they were there for several days, a prophet named Abigus came down from Judea. He came, he came to us, took Paul's belt, tied his own feet in his own hands and said, this is what the Holy Spirit says. In this way, the Jews in Jerusalem will bind the man who owns his belt, owns this belt and deliver him over to the Gentiles. When we heard this, both we and the local people pleaded with him, referring to Paul, not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul replied, what are you doing? Weeping and breaking my heart. For I'm ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Since he would not be persuaded, we said no more except the Lord's will be done. So again, it's a very clear picture of what's coming when he hits when he gets to Jerusalem. And it's again, this deep resolve to finish the, the call that God has placed on Paul's life. And he continues on his journey. 
And then it says, as we wrap up chapter 21 here, wrap up most of 21, because we're not done reading the chapter yet this week, but he says, as they head to Jerusalem, we see exactly what happens play out. We see Gentiles joining him who have been converted to Christianity. He meets Jewish believers there who hear about all that God did among the Gentiles. They celebrate all that God done has done among the Jewish and the Gentile world. Uh, yet they warn him that there are Jews that are believing Paul is preaching that they should abandon the law of Moses, not get circumcised. And they encourage Paul to shave his head and purify himself before going to the temple in an effort to disarm the uh, anger of the Jewish leaders and the Jewish believers, or the Jewish, not believers, sorry, the Jewish audience there locally in Jerusalem. So Paul does this. He shaves his head. He purifies himself. On the seventh day, he goes to the temple to announce the purification is complete. It says Jews from Asia see him, stir up a crowd, seize Paul, and accuse him of not just disrespecting the law of Moses and the temple rules, because Gentiles that were seen with him at some point in Jerusalem, it says that the Asian Jews had made an assumption that Paul had brought the Gentiles into the temple, which was a no-no. And so they seized him, created a riot, removed him from the temple, locked, brought him to the outer gates, locked the door so he couldn't get back in, and they started beating the snot out of him. The commander of the Roman army there hears about what's happening. He brings down his troops and intervenes to stop this beating of Paul. And then he tries to figure out what's happening, and different people in this riot and this mob were shouting different things. So Paul, so he took Paul into his custody, his, his uh, soldiers and legion carry Paul back to the, in essence, the Roman fortress where he's going to be held uh, as a, as a kept in custody as a manner of protection, but also to try and get to the bottom of it. And then we get this last phrase uh, at the end of our reading, which leaves us kind of on a cliffhanger, but he says this, it says this, that the crowd shouted, get rid of him. And that's where the reading ends, is in that, that simple phrase from the crowd shouting to Paul or to the Roman commander and the, the army to get rid of him. Uh, and that's where we end our reading. So it's kind of a cliffhanger. We'll pick up the next, on Sunday, we'll pick up the next reading to figure out what happens more in the story, but that's where it wraps up here. Uh, but that's not the end of our podcast. We actually have a couple more segments for you. The first of which is what we call our application. And, the, and we kind of share with you today what we've learned through our reading this week. Mine is really simple this week, uh, and not just because I'm sick, mostly because I'm sick, <laughs> uh, but I think it's the the passage we were reading in 2 Corinthians talking about the idea that um, we receive comfort from God so that we can give that comfort to other people. And I think it's just a beautiful way of expressing the idea of, as Christians, our lives should be about how do we take the gifts that God has given us and how do we make sure that we give the, those to other people. So it's mercy, right? When God yeah. gives us mercy every day. How do we make sure that we take uh, take that mercy and give it to others? And I love the way Paul put it there, the idea that you know, when we are in our deep affliction and God comforts us, our instinct should be, how can I do the same thing for someone else? Yeah, that's really good. It's so true. Uh, I think the thing for me this week as I was reading, uh, really what struck me is, is Paul's understanding and recklessness with his own life for the sake of the gospel. And and yeah, it kind of anchors back to uh, him heading to Jerusalem and being told multiple times, don't go, even Agabus coming, even even the believers that were through the spirit saying, hey, don't go to Jerusalem. But it just kind of challenged me for a moment to just to consider like, God, do I really consider my life of no value to me? 
do I really think your the gospel is the only thing of value to me? And Paul had a different level of this, I think, um, just based upon his his situation in life as far as being a single man, not having kids. Like my kids, my wife are of value to me. Like there's there's a high value that I place on my children in my marriage. And and I believe that's to, to honor God. I believe that honors God and and placing a value on those things. But when Paul said that my life is of no value to me, I must complete this work. It just was really kind of challenging. It's, it's literally the thought that has rang with me over this week as I was reading. And just to, just to be mindful about the things of value, just to be mindful of the things that I, I, I care enough about to, to make a big deal. And, and the gospel should be the highest value thing in my life. And, and so I was really challenged to consider um, that simple thought of could I imitate Paul's line and say, I, my life of a, is of no value to me. I'm willing to die for the gospel. And in America, I think it's really easy to, to, to not fully grasp this because we live in a very selfish individualistic society and culture where we're products of the culture. And so it's, it's, I, I've heard it recently. I've probably shared it over podcasts over the last several months or so, but this whole idea like American individualism, the American dream goes directly counter contradicts the, the gospel and the call of God to lay down our lives and follow him. And so it's, do I really, what am I valuing above Jesus and, and how do I make that transition to really value Christ above everything else? I thought was really important. Uh, so, so there you go. There's our application thoughts for the week. Uh, and before we kind of come to the end of our podcast, we do have a question we want to take a moment and answer. Yeah, like I said at the top, we have, I think it's just this question. Then we have one more email and one more uh, Facebook message, and then we're caught up. So it's going to be- Game on. And we're coming to the end of our podcast this year, which is crazy yeah, to think about. It's only five more, five or six, I guess six more. And then we're wrapping up, I think. Something along those lines. That's weird to think about. Because there's five weeks, Sundays in, in December, and there's one more week- uh, in November. Anyways. And this will be our first year we've ever done 52 in a year. Fingers so. crossed. Hopefully, Knock yeah. on wood. Listen, if we're making it through this week or the week where I accidentally gave the guest co-host the wrong notes and you had to do it all by yourself. And if we're making it through the week where I sound like garbage and you had a week earlier where you sound like garbage. Did, right. Yeah. You know what? We're going to, we're going to make it darn it. Yeah. It's going to be great. Uh, it might not be great, but we're going to make it one way or the other. Uh, so we did get this, uh, this email coming in. It says, hi, my name is Angus. I'm a 20-year-old dude from Canada, and I've been listening to your podcast for a few weeks now. Hello, so, Angus. Bonjour, Angus, or hello. I don't know if he's from Quebec or not, so <laughs> wanted to be inclusive there. Uh, so uh, I just want to say thank you for this podcast. Uh, it's It makes studying the Bible so much easier for me, and I have an incredibly hard time reading, uh, and you guys are so helpful to bring the characters to life and to really help me envision what life was like back then. Uh, I'm just listening through your episode on the books of Jonas, uh, Jonah and Amos and have a couple of questions that have no relation to the books whatsoever. So that's perfect. Okay. We like them. Uh, so firstly, I haven't listened to you guys' episodes, all your guys', all your guys episodes. So maybe- How rude, man. Come on. Years. Pick up the pace. I would not, I'm just kidding. I would not expect anyone to go through the backlog. I mean, you can if you want to, but it's uh, it's there's a lot of them in there. It's a, it's a, it goes really far back. Uh, but he says, so maybe you've already answered this in years past, but have you guys ever considered giving your testimonies uh, and the story of how you guys met and how this podcast got started? So uh, sure. Yeah. Here we go. So you first or me? Uh, we can go me first. So for me, I grew up in church. Uh, so my dad is a pastor. 
Uh, my grandpa was a pastor. Both my grandparents were pastors. And then my uh, my great grandfather was a pastor as well. So it's kind of a, uh, it's a family business a little bit. Uh, I say that tongue in cheek. It's not actually a family business, but uh, me and my brother are both pastors. So it has kind of, it has kind of, we've been blessed that it's kind of worked out that way. Uh, so fourth generation. So I have a, I have a story very similar to a lot of people who grew up in the church where it was my parents' faith for a really long time, um, not something that I had to necessarily wrestle through too much. And then um, I would say the Lord really grabbed a hold of my heart around 15, 15, 16 is probably when it happened for me. Uh, and honestly, it was just it was just a very clear gospel presentation in a way that I had never heard before, or at the very least, it, it felt like I'd never heard it that way before. Uh, and it was just very clearly laying out, like, you know, like we didn't do anything to earn our salvation, kind of walking through it. And I, it just, it just really changed my heart. Um, around 16, I felt like God was calling me into ministry. And so I made that choice of like, okay, this is what I want to do with my life. Uh, and slowly just kind of became obsessed with the Bible, loved reading it, loved learning about it. Um, got better at teaching. That was not originally the idea of I wasn't, I never, I did not think of myself as a communicator for a very long time. Uh, and then I had a, a youth leader when I was probably 17, pull me aside after I did like a little thing. And he was just kind of like, uh, um, he was like, Hey, you could, you could do this if you wanted to. And it's important to me to know that it's important for me to know that you know that. And so that was really cool. Uh, that was one of, one of my more, um, life-changing moments. And then, yeah. So just been pursuing ministry, moved up here. Um, up here is Marysville, Washington. Oh, true. Yeah. I moved up to Washington. I was living in Las Vegas at the time. So that's where I, I, I grew up. I split time between both. So I grew up here and then moved to Vegas for seven years. And then I moved back up. Uh, and so that's that, I guess I'll, I'll tell the story of how we met and stuff. And then we'll, we'll circle back to your testimony. So you can bring us back up to there. So Go I met, I met Aaron post testimony, obviously. So he, uh, I came up to the Grove church, which is where we're at when I was 17. Um, and so I was a, a youth leader with, uh, the previous youth pastor, Andrew, and then Andrew, uh, got promoted to a different area. And so Aaron came in as the youth pastor. So that's how we met. So we met as, uh, he, he was the new guy. And so we, and I was his obnoxious youth leader who got in trouble a good chunk of the time. Uh, so that was probably, but I don't think you were ever kicked off leadership like some of the other knuckleheads. Yeah. I made it, I made it through. <laughs> so, but I was probably what, 18 when that happened, 18, 19. And you were, yeah, I mean, it was 2012. I moved up here 2012. So I would have been, yeah, 19. So there yeah. you go. I was very young when we met. I was, I, I'm still, yeah, he was a whole lot more arrogant back then too. And I'm still, you know, I'm still an arrogant knucklehead today. So just imagine how insufferable I was <laughs> like 12, 11 years ago or whatever it is. Uh, but that's how we met. And so became uh, I consider us friends. So became friends over the, eh, over the years as it I'm went on. Uh, roles have changed a little bit. So Aaron's not the youth pastor anymore. I'm not a youth leader anymore. So, but we're both on staff. So we get to do this together. Uh, as far as the podcast goes, uh, it just kind of started as an idea of something I wanted to do. Cause I was like, Hey, I think a lot of people, because every year as a church, we do a Bible reading plan. Yep. Uh, a lot of people, I kind of just talked about how like they would just get stuck in, uh, in the, in the usual suspects, you know, you get to Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, uh, Deuteronomy, all of those. And then you get, you know, into the high prophetic books and stuff like that. So it, it can get complicated. So yeah. I was just like, I thought it'd be a good idea. Um, so the first year 
our first like half year, it was me and the youth pastor at the time, Connor. And so we did, if you go back into the backlog, you'll, you'll notice another voice at the very beginning. Uh, and then Connor ended up moving on. And so Aaron came in and, uh, began coasting since then. And that's been the, that's been the story ever since. So we, uh, that was five years ago. Cause yeah, this is season five. So it's just crazy to think about five years ago is when that happened. So that catches you up to the present day. Now we can go back in time and hear Aaron's, uh, testimony a little bit. Yeah. I mean, my my story is a little similar in the sense of, uh, being raised in the church. My parents were not pastors at the time. My dad was in the Navy. Uh, and so, I mean, I remember all of my earliest childhood memories were, were involving church. And so I remember five or six years old, give my life to Jesus, you know, as a, as a five or six year old would comprehend and understand that. I remember at eight years old, I got baptized by my dad back in Virginia. When I lived there, um, we moved to Washington in August of 99. My dad retired from 20 years in the military. And I just, I mean, I, I did what was called, was called the Royal Rangers at the time up until that point, which is like Christ, Christian Boy Scouts. And well, I, I was, I was a straight arrow and made my way up to Buckaroo. So, well, and so, I mean, I can go back and like, I was a straight arrow, Buckaroo is the next one. Pioneers, the next level trailblazers, is the next one oh, you can get like, there's certain merits, badges and things like that, that you can earn. And even to the point of what's called the gold medal of achievement, which is like equivalent to the Eagle Scout and Boy Scouts, uh, there's more rigorous expectations to achieve that, that honor. I, I achieved that when I was 15 years old. So I, I mean, I can go back and, and walk through the whole thing. And those are like, in hindsight, those are things that I think God really leveraged to, to create a foundation that I didn't realize was being built. Uh, I was what I would call lukewarm Christian up until about 15 years old. We uh, were moving. I, you know, I went to church, did the children's church thing where I was serving, so I didn't have to sit in big church. Uh, I went to Oral Rangers on Wednesday nights, so I didn't have to go to youth. And so the 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 encounters, op- the encounter type opportunities with with the Holy Spirit and the gospel were limited in regards to uh, like youth events or youth gatherings. Moved to Washington State at fifteen, and I for me like my my pivot my my turning point was sitting in the van driving across the country at a gold Nissan Quest. I think it was like a 1997 gold Nissan Quest, single side door, not all fancy where they had two side doors. Uh, that was before that ever existed. But I just remember sitting there in, in this bench seat next to my a cat that we had in a kennel. And I just had this thought of, I've never given God a fair chance. Like, and so I, I thought, like I had this simple little phrase in my mind, like it's a fresh start. I could start over and I could start new. And so in that van ride over, the five-day journey from Virginia Beach, Virginia to Tri-Cities, Washington, that that's kind of the shift that made pl- took place. My mom said I was too old. They didn't have a Royal Rangers program at the church we were at. My mom said I had to try youth group once. If I didn't like it after that, then I didn't have to go again. So I went in with my arms crossed, not really caring to engage, thinking I'd just go home. Back, like, yeah, I didn't like it, so I don't have to go again. And going there, I met my youth pastor. I ended up liking it. Ended up staying. Stepped into youth leadership, and it was through that interaction with my youth pastor at the time, who I would still call my youth pastor today. Um, he's no longer serving in youth ministry, but, or in ministry, but all that to say, he loves Jesus and, uh, has an incredible family. But I, I, that was my turning point where out of that conversation, I, I went to a conference, uh, in October of 2000, um, was filled with the Holy Spirit and, and finally had this glimpse of, I could, I, I literally, it was a thought I could, I vividly remember it, that I could see myself doing what my youth pastor doing. I could encourage kids. I could come alongside and hang out with them. And that was the beginning of what I, where I recognized God's call to ministry. I thought it was youth ministry first. I got my first youth ministry gig in 2008. Uh, and, and I remember probably six months in thinking, yeah, youth ministry is not it for me. 
there's more that I have. And not because I didn't like youth ministry. I was a youth pastor for 10 years of my life. Uh, and so I was there for four and a half years, got married. While I was over in Spokane, my wife came over to Spokane after we got married, which is what should happen. And then four, three and a half years later, we moved from Spokane to Marysville, stepped in as youth pastors and have been here for the last 11 plus years ever since. And so I've been, have different roles, but it, it really, at that 15 year old point, turn, it was my turning point too. And so I think that's part of the the similarity we have. So it's a good age for it. I was never arrogant. I was never, I was always humble. I was always, no, I'm just kidding. I was this young cocky kid and God's grace was bigger than that, which is really good. So yeah. There you be. Evan right. was a leader. I compared him to Mark Driscoll when I first met him because of his temperament and kind of his, he was, he was, an angry he guy. was an arrogant little kid. Like, um, and he, and he says he's still kind of an arrogant uncle. There's not as much of that. in. I think he, he has mellowed out a ton. Marriage, that, marriage and fatherhood really mellows you out. I suppose. It's true. <laughs> it, it humbles you. That's, that's a big part of it, I think. Um, but so, yeah, so my roles changed of youth pastor, associate pastor. I stepped into this podcast as an associate pastor. I'm now the business, uh, I'm like the finance and discipleship pastor here at the church, just learning and growing and, and just trying to continue taking steps to God's ultimate call for my life um, every day of it. So yeah, I have three kids. That's that's it, I guess. There you be. All righty. Uh, well, the second part of the question, this, I guess we'll have to go a little bit quicker on this one because that went a little bit longer, but oh, you know, hopefully, you, hopefully you enjoyed that little window into us there. Uh, the Secondly, what do, do you think we're nearing the end times? It seems like every time I turn on the news, there's another story of prophecy coming to life with the Euphrates River driving up, drying up, the war in Israel, earthquakes in Turkey, and the world seeming so demonic lately. Uh, I'm just not sure what you think. Uh, I'm starting to study my Bible and go to church, so I just want an opinion on what you may think of the world today. Uh, this is my answer is, and this, it frustrates people every time I have this conversation because it's a cop-out answer, but I, uh, but I think it's true. Um, I think every generation since the first one after Christ has thought they were the generation that was going to see Christ return. Um, and they've all been wrong. So, uh, I, I don't think the odds are very stacked in our favor. That's going to happen. Um, here's why I do think though, I think we're called by scripture to live like Christ could return at any moment because Christ could return at any moment. Uh, and so honestly, I don't even think it's, I don't think it should affect us that much, whether or not we think it's actually happening soon or not. I think we should live as if it could happen this moment. Um, but at the same time, I think the world has, there's always been scary things going on in the world. Um, there's always been things that are, that are happening that can be uh, interpreted through Bible prophecy. And so I, I tend not to concern myself too much with trying to figure out like, okay, is this it? Is this the time? Uh, I think we should just always be living as if this is it. It's the time. And I think if we do that, we're going to be okay. Uh, so again, kind of a, kind of a cop-out answer, Aaron, I don't know if you have any uh, differences of opinion there, but there, you know, there I am. Yeah, no, I think my, I mean, my answer is, do I think we're nearing the end times? Yeah. I think we're, I think every day since Christ ascended, we're nearing the end. We're times. definitely closer than we were yesterday. hundred yeah, percent. And even five minutes ago. And so uh, I say, yes, I, but I do think, um, I, I, I think we need to live as if the, the times are urgent and, and whether that's because of the end time, I, I just think we have to live as if the times are urgent because the world is growing darker and darker and darker. And the hope that I cling to in the midst of the darkness existing around us. And, and as a parent of three kids, one who's a fifth grader, one who's a first grader in the public school system, I have high concerns in, in our local schools of what, of what they're teaching and the reality of culture and what culture is pushing and all these different things. But at the end of the day, I cling to the hope that in darkness, light shines all the brighter. And, and as followers of Christ, our hope is not in 
what the times are, our hope is in the fact that our names are written in the book of life and we have a space in eternity to belong with God forever. And that's the hope we cling to. And it doesn't mean we shouldn't do our due diligence. It doesn't mean we shouldn't be more mindful and aware and prayerfully considering God, what is, I would just simply say when it comes to the news reports, when it comes to, you know, seemingly prophecy coming to life, it's literally a matter of like, God, what do you want me to do with this? How do you want me to shine for you? How do you want me to love the world that you've called me to love, to introduce them to Jesus? I was even reminded this morning as I was talking to our lead pastor is in John 12, 47, it, Jesus literally makes this statement. I think I shared this on a podcast a couple of weeks ago, but he shares a statement like, I, if anybody hears my words and doesn't do them, Jesus says point blank, I don't judge them. I've come to save them. And he says, at the end of the, the last days, my word will be what they're judged by. And and I, I kind of was challenged and convicted by that in the sense of like, it's not my job to condemn everyone else who's not following Jesus. It's my job to introduce them to a God who loves them like crazy so much so that he sent his only son to die on the world, not to condemn the world, John 3, 16 and 17, but to save the world. And so I think in the midst of these end times, in the midst of these dark times happening, the war in Israel, the, the war in Tur- the earthquakes in Turkey, the, uh, the different seeming signs that are pointing to the end of the age, it should create a greater urgency in us as followers of Jesus to shine brightly the love of Christ, to introduce the world to, the, to a God who loves them like crazy, who showed that love through Christ, who came alongside them in the midst of their hardship through the grace and the power of the Holy Spirit to, to live in the hope and in the freedom that comes from being along, belonging to God's family. So not to get on a soapbox and preach a message, but I just think that that's, it's, it's, there's always, I agree with you. I think there's always someone who thinks in every generation, the end times are near. The Lord is near. The end is coming. Yeah, the end is coming. And we were told that from day one, the end is coming. Jesus told his disciples why he was on this earth. The end is coming. It's just how are we going to respond and what's our job? And that's, I think, our call as Christians. And I don't think, Angus, you were saying, uh, I think we're in the end. I, I think as I'm thinking about how would I, how do I view the times that we're in, what's the call that I feel God's calling me on? And I do think it's that. How am I supposed to shine the love and the truth of Christ to the dark world that I live in? And how do I shine that brightly? Because that's what I think it's, we're called to. So yeah. there's my soapbox. So to sum up, do we think we're in the end times? Maybe. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe. Sure. Do I think that he's coming tomorrow? I have no idea. He could come in the, in the middle of this podcast. Like at the end of the day, it's my job to read the times, to understand, discern the times. It's the Maccabeans, right? They discern the times and, or, it, and, and lived according to the gospel. And that's what we're called to do. There you be. Well, that does wrap it up for this week's episode of Let's Read the Bible. As a reminder, we are a podcast of the Grove Church, but we're not the only resource of the Grove Church. You can find all of our other resources on our website, grove.church under the media tab. And if this podcast has been a blessing to you and you'd like to financially contribute to the ministry that the Grove Church does, you can also do that on our website. There is a give button in the upper right hand corner. And hey, thank you all so much for listening. Have a great week.